Welcome to the Story Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Gregor Holleran. Today we spoke to Ewan Cameron, who's the founder of Willow, a Glasgow-based remote video interview platform. We spoke about his journey from starting a digital marketing agency to starting what is now one of the leading remote video interview platforms in the world. It's now received over a million pounds investment. And we learned a lot about his entrepreneurial journey from starting 15 businesses as a teenager right through to getting investment in where he is today. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Give us your feedback. We're at We Are Story Shop on social media. Hello. Hi. Right, you. So tell me about Willow. Sure. Um, so Willow is, is a video interviewing platform and the kind of I guess the concept came from in the early sort of 2017, 2016, I realized that the interviewing as a concept was, was pretty poor um, from a candidate perspective in particular. Um, so kind of back, back, in, back in those kind of 2016, 2017, I was interviewing lots of people face-to-face for a company that I worked in. And it wasn't really very, very flexible for me or the candidates, and it felt a bit broken. So I started inviting them to send me in videos um, instead of sitting opposite them, talking to them in an office. And the videos are really good. And I started to realize that there was actually something in interviewing over video. And this was before Zoom and Teams and things really, and Skype were, were like a big thing. So video was like quite a new concept, but it was quite, it was quite obvious to me that it was a really good way of getting to know someone. Um, so Willow was actually born off the back of that kind of really early trial, I guess. There was, there was no like plan at that point to make it into a business or anything. I was just literally trying to interview people in a more efficient way. And then Willow was born out of that kind of, I guess, that frustration, um, which, you know, people often say like the best businesses are born out of problems that you have. And I guess that was where that came from. So, um, yeah, today, obviously, Willow is a video interviewing platform. Um, and our, our real philosophy is, is to make it the best interviewing experience for candidates. Um, rather than just businesses because candidates obviously they are the they're the people that tend to be kind of um i guess an unfair advantage in an interview the interview tends to be very one-sided it's for the business and the candidate just has to show up um you know at a certain place at a certain time answer a bunch of questions to a person they've never met before so uh it's it's kind of tipping the tables or, or kind of creating a level playing field for candidates and businesses, which is what we really focus on is our vision. So you've obviously got a clear vision. You're very passionate about the concept. How did you know you wanted to take the leap and you know, give up the day job and make the move? Yeah, so I guess the, I did it in phases, right? So basically I, I had a, a full-time job for like 10 years. Um, I started there as a graduate, so I'm like 10 years in. Like it's a full-time job. It's paying me. I've got like a company car. It's all very nice. But I knew that I wanted to do my own thing. Um, but I couldn't just like give up that because I didn't have any savings. And I didn't have any kind of real, I guess, understanding of of what the next steps would be to actually go from, you know, going to a nine to five job to not having a nine to five job and actually still earning money. It didn't. I didn't really have a, a bridge, so I actually created a bridge, and and the the kind of the the bridge was I started my own marketing agency, digital marketing agency. So I quit the nine to five, started my own digital marketing agency, had a bunch of clients that I already kind of knew wanted to work with me, started working with them. 
and and then for the next three years I actually just ran a digital marketing agency on my own and then eventually got two other people to work with me and and during that digital marketing agency which was basically skills I already had so I was just doing it for myself and you know doing it freelance and, and invoicing people instead but doing that allowed me to actually build up some extra savings and then I used those savings to then make the jump to going and building Willow so it was kind of like a two-step process I didn't just like quit and then go and build Willow I kind of had to build up some savings and I guess we'll come on to that in a bit but that was kind of it was either savings or investment and at the time I had no idea about investment so I was like well I need some cash right to actually to do this and at the time I think I probably had like a thousand pounds of savings so obviously that wasn't going to last very long because a lot of people say you know if you're going to start a business you need six months worth of savings like salaried savings which at the time felt like ridiculous and um, that I could ever do that so by doing the agency I actually basically the money the money was like built up in the business I didn't take any money out of the business um, other than what I needed to live and then just used that to invest into the new company so I was kind of investing in myself I suppose in those early days. So what did you learn from the first company from the digital marketing agency yeah. that you changed when you went to starting Willow? Um, I guess in the first company I learned that people would actually pay you for things that you do <laughs> rather than just like you're giving you a salary like literally you know if you say like I'll sell you this glass of water for a tenner people would actually pay you a tenner if you ask enough people that was the thing that I didn't really realize I didn't really have a connection between things that I could do and people wanting to pay for it because when you when you're in a salary job it's there's a real disconnect because in a salary job you turn up you get paid and you go home and as long as you turn up you get paid and if you do a decent job you probably get paid even more that was all I really thought about whereas when I did my own thing I was like holy shit people actually want to like pay me for just doing what I do but they'll pay me more as well which is really cool and um, so I learned that and then I also learned that you could like you know about invoicing and stuff and that you could sort of you could actually start to like build up like a business you know one invoice after another it starts to obviously multiply and then you're invoicing like 15 20 clients a month and suddenly there's a business there so I guess it was it was just this realization that if you if you speak to enough people and ask you know the, the right price people will give you money and, and pay for something that you've created that kind of blew my mind to start with just because there was no connection there. I never realized it you know that's what happened confidence thing as much as anything else being able to yeah. know that you could go out in your own and yeah give you that yeah for sure the rule for yourself yeah for sure it was a test as well right if it didn't work I would have just gone back to my job mm-hmm. and and it was a good test obviously it worked out that's a great safety net isn't it when you know you go out and you know you could go into other similar jobs so if you try it you can mm-hmm. only fall to a kind of certain level once you've proven yourself yeah for sure I mean yeah that was I guess I was quite fortunate as well that the employer that I had previously would have welcomed me back if everything had gone horribly wrong. So it was a good opportunity to kind of go out and just try it. I think that comes from like marketing as well, just marketing in general. You test everything, don't you? So I was quite used to just trying stuff, whether it's like personal stuff or hobbies or whatever, you just have to try stuff. So I just went and get, I guess, and, and tried that and it worked. But it wasn't like it was easy. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm talking about it as if it was really easy, but it wasn't very easy. Like lots of people wouldn't pay, <laughs> lots of invoices would go like unpaid and, People would be unhappy sometimes and people would have unrealistic expectations. So there was loads of shit along the way. But I guess in in the end, it was just the realisation that you could actually make something or do something and people would pay for it. So what stopped you from, obviously you had a business that was growing and what stopped you from just kind of hammering that business and keeping driving that forward? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I guess the thing that, that always excited me was was people like on Twitter mostly I'd like mostly spend my time on Twitter as like a social network and, and loads of people on my Twitter kind of network set up software businesses and I loved the idea that like particularly kind of these kind of digital nomads would set up a software company on their own. Like one person, like in Bali or Thailand or whatever, they would have their own company, their own software. And they could actually just grow that. I love the idea of that. Like one person could go from like, you know, having no money to actually generating mm-hmm. <laughs> an actual income for themselves. Um, so I just, I wanted to try and get into that, you know, like this sort of whole like scalable software business opportunity, which mm-hmm. I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, you don't, you don't, you know, like the, the marketing agency was fun and everything, but it always had a, a limitation of scale mm-hmm. as, as you'll probably know as well. Like, you know, Definitely. if you want more clients, you have to have more staff. Yeah, they, they always go hand in hand uh-huh. all the way up and then you end up with wastage and things and it's difficult. It's really hard to manage that and keep that tight. Whereas I was quite excited by the software concept that you could have like five employees and, and the business could generate revenues that, you know, like a thousand employees in my marketing agency could probably generate. Mm-hmm. I think in almost like a marketing agency, there's a need to kind of stop it from growing in a sense whereas something like yeah. willow is about how quickly can you get that out to as many people as possible and create a network effect whereas a marketing yeah. agency if you could just go bigger and bigger and bigger then you're just going to cause yourself mm-hmm. loads of problems and it's it's not scalable in the same yeah. same way at all yeah for sure i mean we're, we're probably really similar in, in terms of story shop and my agency my agency's usp was that we were like a boutique agency so we knew everything about the client we knew like their sales forecasts, we knew their products, what was coming in the product pipeline. Like we would get involved in financial plans, like projections, the whole lot. We were really tight. But obviously to scale that up is quite difficult as well. Mm-hmm. Because you need to be like obviously staying tight with a certain number of businesses. You can only do that with a number of businesses. Mm-hmm. I think our maximum number of clients at any one time was about fifteen. And that was that was as much as we could do without it getting kind of unwieldy and like losing track of of clients' goals and expectations. Mm-hmm. So that was the cool thing about software is that you could obviously like you just have a lot more customers and it doesn't it doesn't scale in that same awkward way. Mm-hmm. So when you, you moved in it was self funded. Um how long did you stay that way for? Mm. So self funded, I'm trying to think back. So we we actually self funded twenty nineteen, like the whole year. So we built the platform with our own funding. And we were also really fortunate to get Scottish Enterprise to give us some funding. I think around 10K. How difficult which, was that? Um, it was actually not that difficult. I uh, I know a lot of people say, like, oh, they're, they're, they're difficult. It's, like, not all about the funding from SE. You know, they, they give out lots of advice and stuff. But all we really want is funding. Actually, the funding wasn't that difficult at that point. Mm-hmm. It was a, I'm trying to remember, it was, like, a, it was basically a grant to sort of prove a concept and I'm sure it was 10K and you basically had to come up with a concept that you wanted to prove. So at that time, we pulled together a brief that we wanted to build a video interviewing platform. And that was the concept. And then, and you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like that complicated a brief. It was maybe like 10 pages, 10, 15 pages. And it had costings and it had designs and stuff. And, you know, we had invoices as well. So we, we got like invoices or quotes rather from the the software company that was going to build it and things. So we packaged all it together. They kind of approved it eventually. And then the only downside was actually we had to pay up front for the the work. So we invested the 10K from our 20K. I 
think, that we had in the pot. And then they gave you the 10K back once you invoiced them. So that was the only kind of, I guess, friction in the process. But it wasn't that bad. Like in the, in that grant in that early day, it was pretty pretty swift. And obviously that was before COVID and things. So there was a lot more grants available, I think. Um, I don't think that grant's available anymore, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, in, in 2019, it was self-funded from about 20K of our own money, plus that 10K from SE. And then we basically ran that right up to the point where we had an MVP. So we had an actual platform that people could use and it was all of our own. So there was nothing like, there was no cost. Was, we didn't owe anyone anything. Like we just literally had a platform by like the December of, of 19 that was there. Like you could literally go on, you could do an interview. It was, I mean, it was really basic. It looked horrible and things, but it worked. And, and that was kind of, that was, that was a cool moment because we realized that we'd actually built something with the, with the funds. We then had like we had zero money actually by that point, so we had spent it all. Um, but what what we did have was obviously our own, um, our own savings. So me, and and the other guys in the team, we actually put in our own money. Um, so how many of you were there at that point? So there was three of us at that point, um, and we were all working full time jobs though. Right. So this was like a side project. So I was just kind of building it like with the software developers in the evenings and stuff, or like on lunch, you know, like lunch breaks and things just around our work. So we had like, it was a bit weird because we got to the end of 2019 and we had, we all had full-time jobs, but yet we had a, a platform that we could actually start selling. Mm-hmm. And and then obviously the next step was, well, how do we start selling it? Because otherwise it's a bit of a waste. We've just burnt 30K mm-hmm. and uh, and no one knows about it. <laughs> and that, that's actually one of the weirdest things about software. Uh-huh. If you go like on, on Product Hunt or something, there's so many amazing bits of software out there that nobody knows about. And they, they just never know about it, which makes me really sad because... Actually, there's some really good stuff out there. So that was like the next, the next, I guess, phase was like, okay, holy shit, we need to actually tell people about this now. Otherwise, it's just going to die like in a, in a grave somewhere along with all the other amazing software that's out there. Um, so we, we used our own money actually after that. Um, I think about 500 pounds a month mm-hmm. on marketing. So we had like a bank account. We all kind of put a little bit of money in each month from our savings or from our salary. And it just went into this little bank account. And then that was our marketing money for like kind of the next few months just to try and get things kind of off the ground. It must have been so challenging. It shows the kind of belief of how much you believed in it. Because if you're sitting there and you know the more time you spend on your other business, the more money you're going to make, whereas this one yeah. is only taking away money and it's taking away the time from being able to make more money yeah. to invest in it. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 on paper, it looked really stupid, actually, what, what I was doing because I was almost like, you know, just stopping what I was doing. For no reason. It wasn't like there was an obvious reason on paper for stopping one business and starting another. But I knew that I had to give it a shot. So it was uh, it was just a literally a case of forcing myself away from, you know, growing that business and actually trying to grow the other one, which was Willow in the end. So how do you take that big, because I think that's a lot of people would look at that and think that's where they go wrong, where they just get boiled down in the day to day and it's far too easy to just keep going in that treadmill and keep bringing that money in. Yeah. To actually, how did you what allowed you to kind of take that helicopter view where you were able to see the long-term vision and think how you could yeah. build Willow into what it what it is now? You know what, I guess there's a bit of a trick here, which I learned, but only in hindsight, but I was obviously doing it, which is I told a lot of people what I was doing and they kind of held me accountable. So like friends, family, and also in, in the end, our board members. So we, we spoke to a couple of people and had, we created a board quite early on. And by telling the board, one of the cool things, one of the side effects of that was that they then kind of held you accountable. 
you know, if, if you just sit there and sit in your chair and tell yourself you're going to do something, it's really difficult to actually do it. Mm-hmm. But if you tell like 10 other people you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Like, even, I've like, told a lot of people I'm going to start jujitsu and I've still not started. <laughs> <laughs> well, you told me now, so I'm going to, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to put that on my task list. Every day I'll just message you until you do it. <laughs> Look forward to that. But like, I guess the, the kind of, the, the story, the moral of that story was really that I, I just told enough people. I mean, they probably didn't even keep me accountable. I was keeping myself accountable in the end because I felt like, you know, I told all these people I should probably do something about it. Otherwise, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll think, you know, Ewan's a bit of a flake here. He's like, he's wanted to set up this business and then he's not done anything about it. Um, so I guess, yeah, telling a lot of people did help kind of keep me accountable in, in the, the kind of early days when there was no real logical reason to jump ship from one to another. I suppose the logical reason is that this, you know, it's a great idea and someone will find a lane towards that idea. And if you're not an early mover, then you'll yeah. see the opportunity kind of go by. Whereas now you've, you know, established yourself in that space. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess it was, um, there, there is that kind of like, if you don't do it, someone else will, I guess, mm-hmm. as well, right? Um, at the time, it was difficult to see that, though. It was, it was, because you you couldn't even I couldn't even really see it being a business. You know what I mean? It, it didn't seem like a viable thing. Mm-hmm. We knew we had a bit of software, but we didn't really know what it looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, like or what like the customer looked like or anything. I had no like vision in my mind of what it actually was. It was just a kind of a thing that sat on some like servers somewhere. But um, yeah, obviously the definitely the the board in particular, when I think back, really pushed us to actually make it into something. Mm-hmm. So we used to meet them every I think every like. Maybe every three months, every quarter, we would have a meeting. So how did you pick your board and find um, your board? So our board was, was actually made up of um, one one of the first people on our board. Actually, our first board member was a man called Steve Perry, and he is my neighbor um, in Glasgow. So that was that was how I actually met him. Was We just met in the building. Um, or I met his wife, and then he introduced she introduced me to him. And and he actually liked what we were I was talking about and what we were trying to do with Willow. So he said, Hey, you know, I'd be happy to advise. I think was was what we discussed in the early days was he was happy just to be an advisor. And he he previously worked in, in Visa for twenty five years in a number of like different C suite roles. And before Visa I think Visa merged with Visa Europe merged with Visa US or the other way around where they, they split up. But anyway, he, he retired at that point and, and started advising a lot of businesses, including Willow. And then he fortunately introduced us to another person that he thought would be a great advisor for the board. So that was one of the cool things, I suppose, when, when you find one advisor, they tend to know other advisors. So that was quite good. So he introduced us to another advisor called Stefan. And Stefan ran um, a large headhunting organization. And then our other final board member was a guy called Pete Preston. And Pete Preston was, I'm trying to remember the, the connection, was a bit kind of long-winded, but essentially he was... He was connected to my co-founder, and um, he knew of him. Um, so we, we kind of had these three three board members quite early on, um, but they all just kind of came through networking or like you know chance meeting them in the building and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and just I guess that also just comes though from what I said a minute ago was just talking to people about it. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, the the whole you know getting Steve as as a board member that only came about because I went for coffee with him and told him about Willow. Um, just in a passing, it wasn't like we went. We didn't go to coffee with any agenda, um, <coughs> but that's ended, that's kind of how it works. So I guess that just goes back to what we said a minute ago about just telling as many people as possible, mm-hmm. and then we ended up with these these three board members, which 
like I said, was really good for early early stage accountability. And they, they also became great in terms of funding. So did they invest? Then? Yeah. 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 So they, they were the first investors, actually, apart from us. Um, although we don't really count us as investors. We invested a lot of our time as well, right? Uh-huh. But they were the first cash investors and they got equity in return. So how that. did that happen? Was that a conversation? Was that an ask to them? or? Yeah. So this I guess this is my my favorite discovery from or like I guess learning from investment was we took the business to a certain point with our own money and then we got to a certain point where it actually felt really quite easy to ask them for investment because it felt like a bit of a no-brainer um so we'd obviously taken it to a certain point and we were we knew that we had something people wanted to pay for so to give you an idea of timeline we launched it in January 2020 we got our first paying customer in the February. Then we had like five paying customers the next month. And then even more the next month. It was kind of like doubling every month. Then the pandemic came along and we planned to do crowdfunding and stuff at that point. But because of the pandemic, everyone said don't do crowdfunding. But we obviously had we had customers and we had revenue. So it was quite an obvious ask to go to the board and say, hey guys, like we've obviously got customers here. Something's working we need to take it to the next level. Are you interested in investing? Mm-hmm. And it was about as easy as that. Like there wasn't like a pitch deck or anything. It was like kind of a no brainer because if they didn't invest, someone else would invest. I think mm-hmm. that was the kind of way that I looked at it was we have something here. It's worth investing in. Like it wasn't like just an idea. It wasn't like I went to them and said, Hey guys, I think this would be fun. Do you want to like give us some money? It was like, if you give us money, we'll be able to actually do more of this mm-hmm. and we'll be able to do it quicker and we'll be able to actually you know, start spending more on marketing because we were still like doing £500 a month mm-hmm. every month with our own cash, but generating like a lot more in terms of revenue. So it was it was kind of like a no-brainer at that point. Mm-hmm. And so what was the, the next stage from, once you got their investment, what, what mm-hmm. came next in terms of funding? Yeah, so they invested in like the June, so like the start of the summer, just after, you know, COVID was obviously March, April, they invested in the June. And then it became like a real business because we had to do lots of things that businesses do. You know, like we had to like get lawyers, we had to get accountants, we had to issue shares. It all became really real at that point. Um, so that was, that was June. And then I'm just trying to think the timeline. So we had July, August, we started speaking to an, an investment company that or a VC that Steve had introduced us to. And that was a great introduction because they were, they were a really good VC. The conversations were really good. They were really positive. And particularly with the backdrop of COVID, it was a really nice conversation to have because a lot of the, a lot of the investors I'd spoken to earlier, they had pretty much had their doors closed. They were like, nah, we're just going to focus on our existing portfolio or even worse. You know, they would be like our existing portfolio is really struggling. So we're actually not investing for the time being. Like they just closed the doors, which is quite quite, quite strange alarming. when you think. Well, yours is obviously a business that is you know, yeah perfect for a pandemic. Yeah. you know, and yeah. I think like to diversify and yeah, for and sure. look at these opportunities. It was weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I get I guess a lot of VCs have have strict criteria, don't they? And and their criteria tended to be kind of like, you know, we we invest in, for example, bricks and mortar retail, or mm-hmm. we invest in property, or just the stuff that was really struggling and, and they didn't want to maybe deviate too much from that. I don't know whether they maybe just, that's, you know, their area of expertise. They don't want to like 
break their model because um, a lot of you know a lot of the people working there would maybe be experts in that space whereas this this VC 1818 that we ended up you know going with they they were kind of focused on just early stage businesses in kind of tech and and that was that was really it at the point so they, they were quite open to like investable businesses which was really obviously refreshing mm-hmm. um so we we had those conversations throughout the summer thanks to the, the introduction from steve and then we got to the august and that was the point where they then made a, a kind of i guess a firm commitment to invest. how much were you playing the field at that point um we weren't so i didn't really know what the the field was so it was pretty difficult to play the field and i didn't really know what i was playing um and it I did. I guess uh, I want to. I want to tell this because it's it's something that really struggled with. I struggled with, in in the kind of early investment phase was I didn't really understand investment, so it was really difficult to talk to investors because I didn't know what I was talking about. But when you speak to investors, they always assume that you know what you're talking about, and if you don't, then you're you feel like an idiot. Like it's kind of it's pretty harsh. I mean, they they kind of. I guess they don't need to because there's loads of businesses that do know what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, most most of the conversations I had, I had no idea, like what what we were supposed to be doing. Like, why do why do they want to invest? How do you make something look attractive to invest in? That was super difficult to, to actually get my head around. And then it came to things like valuations and like, what does that even mean? I had no idea. I mean, math is like not my strong point. So I was like, I don't really understand this whole like concept of valuations. I don't understand like equity liquidity exits all of this like there was so much like jargon as well so like every time you spoke to like you know investors they would just send you an email back like what's like what's your arr what's your mrr what's your EBITDA? and all these things to be like i had to google them i had no idea what they were talking about and then go back and pretend that i knew what i was talking about in my response it was a horrible like couple of months because you're just like making it up as you go along did you not go to help first? Could someone not have kind of well, walked you through that? I eventually did, right? But at the, at the start, I felt really stupid because I was like this, you know, I would go on like, go and watch podcast or like watch like YouTube videos and listen to podcasts and everyone talked about it like it was really obvious. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if I ask someone, I'm going to sound like an absolute <laughs> idiot here. Um, and, and I also I was like, who do I ask, right? Because yeah. it's, it's not like, I, I didn't have like loads of friends that had sort of raised money or anything before. And then I also didn't really know anyone in previous in my previous you know business that, that had investment. So it was it was like a really weird space where I had to figure it out um, for myself. But I eventually did actually speak to Steve on the board. He ended up being the person that I kind of started asking the stupid questions of, mm-hmm. and which was this is an important point I think is that you definitely need someone like like Steve or someone that's experienced in investment to ask the stupid questions to otherwise you'll just like never get there you know i had to ask like really basic questions like you know if if we're asking for i think it was two hundred fifty thousand we asked for in the first round if we were asking for that what are we giving them like what are they actually getting for this and like if the business fails what do they get like it seemed like looking back they're really obvious questions i know obviously the answers to them there but looking back i was like i have no idea like they give us a check do they like transfer the money and then what do we give them? Do we just like, you know, do we thank them and, and kind of move on? Or do we like, it just was so alien. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's alien because no one teaches you like that kind of stuff. Um, 
So uh, having somebody like an advisor like that was really valuable because you do need to just eventually go, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Can you tell me? Because mm-hmm. um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense either. There's not, like investment isn't that logical. Like, although a lot of people like, like to say that it is, a huge amount of it is obviously just gut feel and like an appetite for risk, which isn't like black or white. You don't, you know, like if you have, you can have like the most amazing business ever and one investor will say, yeah, I want to invest. And the other investor will say no. They could both be equally as intelligent as, a, as an investor. They could be equally experienced. But one just likes the opportunity more than the other, which took ages for me to get my head around. Because I was like, why? Like, why would they invest in us? This, what's the thing that they're looking for? And it turned out the thing that they were looking for was actually just a really good story and a really good, you know, couple of people running the business like that could actually potentially take it somewhere because mm-hmm. there's nothing else. There's nothing else that you can give them. Like you can obviously show them revenues. You can show them as many numbers as you want. You can throw a whole bunch of spreadsheets at them. But at the end of the day, it boils down to whether they, they like the opportunity and they like the people that are actually running it, mm-hmm. which like, like I said, it was really hard to get my head around. Cause I thought there was more science to it than that. You know, I thought there was like, you know, if you put, you had like, you know, if you had two businesses, business A and business B, business B would have certain things like certain criteria that the A didn't and they would get the investment but there's no such thing as like certain criteria mm-hmm. which was hard to hard to get your head around so how has it changed since they've come on board how's the business changed so the the business I suppose I guess it's probably like like with the, the first investment from the board it just becomes more real so like things become more, more actually like official, like you have processes, for example, you have things that you have to do and um, which, you know, when, when we were running it, you know, when we were all working full time, there was just, you didn't have to do, it. you know, if you didn't, if you didn't do anything in the business for a week, it was, it was still going to be there. Whereas when you've got like investors and you've got like people that you will have to be accountable to it just becomes a lot more real because you have to be there every day. You have to show up and you actually have to do things. And and you also have a lot more like costs because you have to do things the right way. So you got like obviously legal stuff, you've got accountancy fees, you've got companies house, you've got HMRC. There's like loads of people that you suddenly have to start reporting to, which is a good thing obviously because it makes it more, more likely probably to succeed because everything's a bit more rigid. Um, but it also comes with a whole bunch of burden, like quite difficult. So I actually like navigate that sometimes. Well, wasn't that interesting? I can't wait to hear what they say next. If you're looking for something for your eyes to do while you're listening to this fascinating interview, why not visit our website at wearestoryshop.com. There you can do it all. Sign up for our newsletters filled with witty commentary. Read all the lovely things our clients have to say about us. Meet the team and find our social media channels so you can keep up to date with all the stories we're telling. That's wearestoryshop.com. Now back to the interview. So have you found yourself kind of quite naturally taking to those extra roles or do you find them quite difficult? Um, so I, I guess I was, it, was, it was probably easier because I had done the, the marketing agency before. So I already understood how companies house work. I mean, like, Actually, this is ridiculous, but I set up 15 companies in Companies House between the ages of like 
15 years old. Right, give us a rundown of those 15 companies. It's so ridiculous. So basically, you know how I was saying earlier about accountability and if you told enough people about a business idea, then it would make you do it? (laughs) When I was in school, I decided that the the best accountability was to set it up on company's house and buy a website address. (laughs) And then if I bought the website address and I registered at the company's house, it was going to (laughs) happen. So I did like I did this honestly like fifteen times, all registered to my parents' house. Right, like, give us give us all a these like these the used to get all these letters through from companies' house and like they were like what the hell is this? <laughs> and it would just be new random companies that I set up. My favorite my favorite one was and probably longest lasting because it got quite far was a company called Hire Hero, like H I R E Hero, all one word. And the idea behind Hire Hero was that you could go onto this platform and hire anything. So like the the concept came from my next door neighbor when I was growing up had like loads and loads of like power tools and gardening tools and stuff. And if you needed to do anything, you would always go to his house. So like, you know, if you wanted to like, I don't know, drill like a hole in the ceiling or something or drill a hole in the wall, you would go to him because he would have to drill, you have the bits and you have everything. He would tell you how to use it. And I was like, he could literally be making so much money here from us alone if he actually like builds us. We used to just give him like whiskey and stuff and like a bottle of whiskey at the end of the year, maybe for like lending us all these tools. But I was like, there's a great opportunity here for him to actually like, you know, rent these things out to everyone in the, you know, in the neighborhood, for example, and and make money back, especially because we were using them. They were obviously getting worn out. Um, so I decided, well, let's set up this hire hero business where if you like, if you own something, you can put it on the platform and people can rent it from you. The The first, the first product I had in mind was if you owned a ladder, you could put it on the platform and then people could borrow your ladder and pay you. And the reason I thought of this was that people, people don't often own ladders because you don't need a ladder very much. Like you don't need to go up high very often. <laughs> so I was like, that's a perfect opportunity. So many ladders in garages, probably needing to go to other places occasionally and get rented out. So Hire Hero was, was probably the one that lasted the longest. Um, I had like a logo, I had a website address. Um, I, had a, I had actually a, like a, a freelancer in India design the full like application and stuff just from like, I don't know, maybe a hundred pounds a month in pocket money or something I paid him. But it was like, I did all this stuff, but obviously I was too young and too naive to actually get them any further. Like they were just ideas on my computer um, and, and obviously registered the company's house. And then they would get to a point where they would, uh, they would email me and say, we're going to make your company dormant because you haven't filed anything. So I ended up with all these like dormant letters and stuff coming through and then they would get striked off and, and I ended up with a whole litter of like random old stuff that I never did anything with. And I've got a whole folder on my computer with all these like companies that never went anywhere. Like, did you revive any of them? No, they were all terrible, I think. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to start, like I once even had this idea of like starting up an underwear company where like you could subscribe and they would post you out new boxers every month. But obviously they exist now. Yeah. So maybe that was a good idea, but I never went through with it. <laughs> It's called undergarment. <laughs> I think that's the most fascinating thing, you know, about starting a business. It's about starting a business like that, because I suppose the marketing agency, you know that you've got that skill and you know that there's a market for it and you know you can kind of drive there. But mm-hmm. if there's some of these ideas that could absolutely fly if you put everything behind it, but mm-hmm. they could very well not. And there could be a massive company that is then going to just own that space and not give you the chance. But yeah. To to then kind of throw your to take the decision to essentially throw your complete weight behind one idea mm. is you know, it's it takes a kind of certain mm. certain person. Yeah. I guess the 
one of the, the differences between being younger with all those stupid ideas I'd registered and also I have all those domains still as well. So if anyone ever wants to buy a domain, I can like sell them to them. <laughs> I used to buy them for like nine ninety nine, but then obviously the author renew every year. So I spent like a, I spent like a lot of money every year on these stupid <laughs> web domains that are never going to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and all these like logos. So I used to pay designers to design these logos, and then obviously never never see the light of day. Sad times. But I guess the difference between then and now was that I started to like I de-risked a lot of it mm-hmm. when I was a kid. There was there was a huge amount of risk because I I didn't know anything so i was gonna have to like invest a lot of my time like i I kind of time is like really valuable i can see that as quite quite clearly a valuable thing i was gonna have to go invest a lot of time in like hire hero for example on like how you can rent stuff out like what's the legality behind like renting things and all that kind of stuff and i felt like that was a rabbit hole i didn't want to go down because i obviously need to focus on like school and studying and stuff so it just Whereas now, because I because I had like I learned a lot more about businesses and setting things up and doing things like that, a lot of it had been de-risked. So I'd taken the jump from a full-time job to running a marketing agency. I already knew a lot of the things, um, so it was it was an easier leap, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't I didn't have to like sit for weeks researching how to set up a marketing agency. Do you ever I think how you do? How things would have gone if you obviously went to university if you didn't go to university you just backed one of those ideas and maybe it wouldn't work but then there's another idea and another idea yeah do you ever kind of look back and think about that um yeah but i think university actually was quite valuable because Why? because it made me realize like i guess it just kind of made me realize that there was like a world out there because i grew up in a really small little village and there was like a thousand people or something in there and that was kind of like it i didn't really see like you know, there's different cultures and there's different like different countries buy things different ways like there's so many different customers out there there's so many different needs you know like if, if we sell you can sell something in one country it can be really successful and you can sell it in another country no one wants it i didn't really get that i just felt like there was like that was the world so it was quite good to go to university and see that there was actually like there's a lot of diversity and, and things out there so that was probably a really valuable thing and then also just like you know like learning about money and things and how to actually budget was quite useful because th- through university I did actually I ran one of the companies which was a digital marketing agency in university only had one client um through uni but it was it was quite quite cool because I, I learned about budgeting so I would invoice him every month and then he would pay me and that was actually what I used for like half of my month's budget in uni which was really cool it was like a that was a the client was a basically a French property um company so like they bought um developments in france and then they would sell them um to investors in the uk but they would sell them as like kind of timeshares you know so they would split it up mm-hmm. so that the property that they bought in france would be segmented up and you would buy like a, a tenth of it or something but i ran the website that basically had all these properties on it mm-hmm. it was quite basic like it was obviously 2007 kind of eight nine ten so it was a pretty basic website you know where you just drag and drop stuff and it was all html it was quite basic and he actually used to post me so that whenever he wanted a new property on the website, he would post me a CD-ROM with the pictures of the property. And he would also send me a huge brochure that was about two inches thick, which was obviously accompanying the property. So it would tell you about all the facilities and stuff. I had to like take that CD-ROM and take that brochure and somehow turn that into like a website page. It was really <laughs> weird. So how did you, how did that start, you know, in terms of skilling up to being able to do that and finding that client? 
Um, it was actually a school project. So in school we had, um, you know, like, it was like fourth year or something. Like, it was like a project where it was like start your own business. And everyone had to like come up with a business idea. And I think the, the school gave you like a hundred quid or something to like start this business. So me and my friend used a hundred pounds to buy like a piece of software that made websites. It's called Coffee Cup, I think. It was really shit. And um, you basically drag and dropped websites on it and it gave you websites. It was so basic. But that was our, that was our company. And our first client was my friend's dad. And he basically was like paying us for basically a crappy website. But, but I then kind of took that bit of software and told my you know friends and family that I was building websites. Do they want one? Because I had software. Like so, it was weird thinking back. Like software was kind of like a, you know it had it cost more and it was weird. You had to buy it on like a CD and things. Mm. You know, obviously you can download like a million bits of software in about ten minutes now from Google or whatever. But you actually had to buy a bit of software and it came sometimes in a box and stuff, didn't it? It was weird. Um, but yeah, I had like this bit of software. Made a made a bunch of websites. Ended up my next door neighbor introduced me to this guy that ran the French property website. And then I still sometimes speak to him actually. Um, but he basically was like, you know, your neighbor tells me you can build websites. Do you want to build mine? And that was it. And then throughout uni, I just did this website for him. It was quite fun. Um, it was a good distraction from uni work and stuff. And it was quite cool to be able to actually make, you know, money myself. Because none of my friends really you know, had jobs, or if they did have a job, it was like a bar job. Whereas this actually paid quite well. You know, I was billing him like £500 a month, which back then was quite a chunk of money. Mm-hmm. You know, considering I probably only spent about £300 a month. So it's pretty cool mm. to actually get that. And and it was only like, I don't know, 10 hours a month or something, really. It wasn't that difficult. Like, I obviously had to navigate all the CD-ROMs and these big brochures always arriving in my flat, and it was pretty weird. But... um. Yeah, that was that was quite fun, I suppose, and that that was where I really learned about in, invoicing and things. Actually, you know, the the whole like process of of sending an invoice out and getting people to pay for it and things, because that's even like you don't get taught that in school. Nobody tells you like if you sell like an hour of your time, you have to add on like you know you have to multiply it by the hours, the hourly rate, and you have to send them an official invoice like a bit of paper. That was all alien, but I figured that out and then and started doing that. Mm-hmm. It was just like a word document. It wasn't like anything fancy. I didn't use any kind of software it's just a word document i just typed it in my dad probably gave me the template and then just sent it out mm-hmm. and that worked quite well um i don't know what we've totally gone off topic i think <laughs> but that was no it's very interesting that was funny like, i forgot about there that. is like you even at university like everyone kind of has to kind of do the same thing and they've got you know they're all going out and drinking and they're all like they've got kind of similar jobs and to kind of take yourself away and do something different is quite a bit of a bold decision as well and you know i think University is about finding your work ethic as well, almost because yeah. you have to like you have to completely train yourself. And I think that you know being that separate to the norm is like, I've found that with starting a business is quite a hard thing because you know the reality of your time and the reality of kind of what your focus is in life is so driven by having that business and yeah. When it comes to family, when it comes to your friends, and to try and keep everything going at the same time, you can't really just live a normal life you know there's there's so much that's kind of going for your attention yeah that's true you know what i guess one of the drivers though was that my and it's probably it was probably intentional but my parents made me like earn my own money from like really young Mm -hmm. so i like started cutting neighbor's grass when i was about 12 years old for money 
like direct debits with them when I was 12 years old. It was awesome. I used to have direct <laughs> debits with neighbors and they'd pay me a tenner a week to cut their grass. But what some of the neighbors did was pay me all through the winter, even though I wasn't cutting their grass. So I used to make like an extra 40 quid a month for like five months of winter. And I didn't cut their grass. It was the best thing ever. And that, that was like, honestly like really early, but my parents made me kind of earn my own money. Um, it was obviously intentional. At the time it felt really harsh because they wouldn't give me pocket money and stuff, but actually it was useful because then in uni they did similar. So like, they're not like really harsh or anything, but like they didn't give me much money in uni. And that was what drove me to obviously run the, to, to run that guy's website. Because obviously if I didn't, then I was, there was no other option. I no suppose. money for the no, beer bar at the GU. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The GU would have, would have str struggled, although it was much cheaper back then. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. What was it, like 90p a pint or something? <laughs> pint of fun. Yeah. It didn't, um, didn't cost much. <laughs> so t just talk to us about, you know, since you've come in, what is this, since uh, 1818 you've come in, what are you now able to do? Where is the business now that it wasn't before? Yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bring us up to today. So we've taken two rounds of investment now from 1818. So we took one last year and then we took one in August of 2021, so just a few months ago. So we've actually raised over a million pounds, which is insane when I think about it. It doesn't feel like that. But we've raised over a million pounds over the past year. And what that's allowed us to do is actually just do more of everything. So like, there's nothing, there's nothing specific that's changed. But what we've done is just be able to do more of everything. So we've done more marketing. We've got more salespeople so we can do more sales. We can do more product development because we can obviously pay more software engineers. We've got, um, you know, better branding materials because we can afford it. So like all of the investments just allowed us to, to kind of scale everything up to the next notch, um, which, which is cool um, because obviously m more of everything just results in, in more sales at the end of the day. So it's been, it's been, I guess it's just enabled us to do everything a bit better. And are you now starting planning for the next round? Not at the moment. So the investment conversations will start in March of 2022. And that will be our next round of funding, which is, is exciting because the, the first two rounds of funding would be what you would call pre-seed and seed. And I never knew these terms until like a year ago. So I can say them now like I know what they're talking about, but I, I didn't before. I never knew what the word seed meant or series A, but pre-seed obviously is like your very early stage money. It's really high risk and, and people that invest in pre-seed companies, they're they're taking on a massive risk that it's going to fail. And then you get seed, which is a little bit more like this business is actually going somewhere. So they give you a little bit more, it's a little bit less risky. And then our next round is going to be what's called series A. And series A will be raising between 1.5 and 2 million. So obviously much bigger sum of money, but the business is much more, I guess, robust um, by that point. So we're going to start talking about that with investors in March of next year and um, to take it to the next the next level after that. Um, so that, that'll, be, that'll be kicking off then. The reason that we're not talking about it right now is that we just need a break from investment conversations. So it's almost like how it must be a massive part of your job and you know i suppose yeah. the other thing is you you know growing the company itself as in what the product is mm -hmm. the service and ever, everything else and then yeah to spend i imagine when it comes to these investment conversations it's almost full time from yeah. there on out yeah exactly you're totally spot on so from march onwards it'll be my full-time job to just be speaking to investors and um, which if 
like I remember I remember Steve in the very early days saying like um oh you'll need to like dedicate like as as this continues you'll need to dedicate a lot of your time to this and this will become like your job I didn't really believe him I was like how can it like how can this become a thing and that takes up that much time but I realized in that previous round that it can because you've got so many people to speak to like you can't obviously you can't just speak to one investor and hope that they they like it you need to speak to lots of investors but obviously the more investors you speak to the more things they want so like you know one investor might want a spreadsheet that shows this another investor might want to see a spreadsheet that shows that or another investor might want to speak to you know a number of your customers for example there's like loads of different demands so you have to try and figure all that out and keep them all happy and keep them all in the loop so that's how it becomes a full-time job so from march onwards i'll be doing just investment conversations which is is why we're kind of i'm putting it out to march to give me a chance to think about the business Mm -hmm. direction more generally and do you start kind of so there's no investment activity there's no kind of setting up conversations for the future or anything or yeah so there is some conversations that i'm setting up at the moment but really not trying to get involved in it yeah like it's it's quite an obvious kind of resistance i'm putting up where i'm like i don't want to talk about it just because it's it's such a huge time suck Mm -hmm. and if we don't need it right now which we don't thankfully because we're in a good place in terms of cash I don't want to think about it, mm-hmm. basically, because there's like loads of other stuff to think about in terms of like, you know, sales and marketing and product direction and stuff. So, so what do you enjoy doing most? Like, what's a dream? Um, definitely the product development side of things. So, like, how people actually interact with the platform is really cool. I love like speaking to customers and understanding how they use it. To give you actually an interesting insight, one of the one of my favorite roles used to be just we used to actually or we we kind of. We still can. We can basically follow like a user's journey through the platform. So, like if you, for example, log into Willow, we can actually see obviously your your journey through the platform. Like he lands on page A, goes to page B, spends a bunch of time on page B, clicks on this button. I used to follow every single user's journey, like all day, every day. That was all I did, and I figured out where they got stuck or where they dropped off. And I loved that because it allowed you to then figure out the bottlenecks and fix things. So you would like. You know, for example, if you saw like ten users had the same issue, then I would like I, I would like go in and like figure out well how do we fix that issue for them, mm-hmm. um, and you could overlay that with really interesting stuff like where are they based or what's their like job title or you know try and figure out who who actually are these people. Obviously, it's all anonymized, so you got to try and piece the bits together. Um, but I love that just like trying to like speak to customers and solve their problems and make it better for them. Um, that's that's exciting for sure. It's like building anything, right? You know, like building building a physical product would be just as exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. Although a lot more time consuming, at least in the software, you can build stuff quite quickly. But I like making stuff and people can actually use it. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I think it sounds like you definitely, you know, you is you'll definitely get. Obs- you sound like you're, obs- you know, you're completely obsessed with it. And as any founder is, how do you stop it completely taking over from it being every single moment? Because you could work. 24 yeah. 7 on it and still have far more to do yeah so how do you create that block um so i think if if i so i am obsessed but i'm not like i'm not obsessed if you know what i mean so I, I could quite easily not think about it for a day if i wanted to sounds amazing it's not amazing <laughs> it's really bad no, like it's it's you not need that it's uh no, but you know what? I, I realized because I I did I did the opposite where I thought about it all the time, uh-huh. and I couldn't sleep because I constantly thought about it. I, my whenever I closed my eyes and I was trying to go to sleep, 
all I could think of was I was actually a user inside the platform, going through the platform. That's all I could see. I was like, this is a horrible existence. So I actually, when was it? I think it was probably last March when I'm, just before lockdown, I spoke to you and I went to Spain for a few days mm. on my own. And that was like the first opportunity when I didn't think about it. Um, like I literally just like consciously went there and cycled for like the four days and didn't think about it. And then I came back and I was like, I actually can now think again about it clearly. It was because before I went, I was just like thinking about it so much that I couldn't even think about anything. It was like a big, massive ball of like mess. So when I went away and then came back, I could suddenly see it all clearly. And then I could prioritize. I was like, this is important. That's not important. This is important. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was more like, it wasn't like, I wasn't really like, it, it kind of happened because it happened because it was forced upon me. I was, I got to a point where I was thinking about it way too much. Mm -hmm. um, so then I had to kind of step away. So now I'm, I'm more conscious mm -hmm. of that. I guess just to not think about it too much so cycling must help yeah having a another yeah just like hobby. a hobby right yeah. Get, getting away and doing anything uh -huh. or even just like go for a walk or something because it's quite hard to think about stuff when you're on a walk see if you're on like a, a purposeful like fast walk <laughs> you can't really think about anything else right yeah you just think about putting like one foot in front of the other and like where you're going maybe yeah. so that actually helps too but it does help for sure 100 percent. I'm, I'm totally totally for that like getting completely forgetting about it because you i remember i remember going to spain and i'm thinking to myself if i completely switch off from willow am i gonna like forget <laughs> like how it works it's, and, it's like it becomes like 60 percent of you 100 percent of the time rather than it being 100 percent of you for 60 percent of the time which yeah. is far more effective yeah and that's i certainly you know, ask that because it's a very real challenge for mm -hmm. me that you know i can't seem to find a break and even just go like and it's self-imposed you know mm -hmm. because you just find yourself getting obsessed with it and it, it becomes quite hard and it is that i think part of it has been you know we're not going to talk about the pandemic every episode but there, it, there's no there's no pattern break you know yeah. if you have that pattern break where you go away for four mm -hmm. days or something like that yeah and then suddenly you're like right okay well why was i in that pattern that was yeah. doing this every single day and yeah so it makes yeah cause you, you don't have even like even the seasons and stuff have all kind of blurred into one right yeah because you used to have like summer it was everyone's on holiday yeah it's like quiet time mm -hmm. and everyone's busy like you know from summer to like winter and then winter you're at christmas and it's quiet time again you don't have that cycle at the moment it's just like every month is the same mm -hmm. so it's always on i feel yeah so which is kind of weird yeah and if you take like time off it's also like there's never there's never a good time for time off mm -hmm. the past 18 months yeah because there's n like nothing's ever shut down is it it's not like everyone ever just stops because that's what you love about like christmas you know that week between christmas and year everyone stops yeah so you don't feel like bad about it uh -huh. so it gives you permission to, yeah <laughs> to switch but like the past weird. 18 months there's never been like a break like that has there uh -huh. but i think it, it's totally it's so important and and what i realized when i was in that that trip in spain was that not only did I not forget everything about Willow when I came back, but I then actually could just see everything like much, much more mm. clearly, which was good. And the, probably the stuff that I did forget about, I didn't need to remember in the first place. Yeah. You know, I, I went out with probably loads of stupid challenges in my head or problems that weren't real problems. And then I went and then came back and then they were gone probably because they were never important. It's a funny thing Weird. though when you sit there with something you're to do list for a long time and then suddenly you're like, I'm crossing it off just because it's gone away. Yeah. You know, it's never just, even a thing. It's never even a, a thing and you let it linger and yeah. it's yeah. It's and yeah, it's, it's stupid, isn't it? You let it go for so long that you almost feel like you've given yourself permission to get rid of it. Uh-huh. 
Whereas you could just like get rid of it now. Yeah. Like, I've got stuff on my to-do list. It's probably six months old. Like reply to <laughs> XYZ's email. I haven't replied to them in six months. I don't need to reply now. Yeah. <laughs> just cl- like cross it off. Cross it off. It's so it's stupid. Done. I obviously put it in the list in the first place because I don't want to reply to them. Uh-huh. Otherwise I would have done it back then. <laughs> so yeah, that's weird. I don't understand why that happens. But definitely just like giving yourself permission to take time off and erasing everything from your your, your head is, is a good good move i think yeah but it's harder with a pandemic for sure so let's finish off by giving us three top tips for going out and getting investment three top tips okay number one would be um have somebody that you can ask the stupid questions to because you're never going to know all the answers to to any of it like whether it's like jargon whether it's you know like the process of getting the investment the, the sort of the terminologies people use. So have have someone to ask the stupid questions to that you trust is a good one. The next one is probably to ask for more than you need because that is a, it's weird. Because you're asking people for money, you tend to want to lowball it, or at least I do, because it feels like if I ask too much, I'm like, are they going to give me it? Are they going to think I'm ridiculous? So I, I think ask for more than you need. Like go for like, Pick a sensible number of what you actually need and then redo your plan and ask for more um, would be a good one. And that goes like with pricing, even pricing of services and products. Always just price slightly higher because people will pay it. You'll be surprised. Um, and then the third one is, is probably, I'm trying to think. The third one is probably to have, you know that, that board that I told you about at the start? So having advisors, um, it probably... Looking back, what well, it didn't probably it definitely helped to have the advisors because it made the business feel more more stable and more of a, a solid business opportunity. If it was just, for example, me going out and asking for two hundred fifty thousand pounds, it'd probably be a lot more difficult because they'd be like, "Who the hell is you and what's he going to do with our money?" And is he just going to run away and spend it? Whereas when you have like a board of like senior people that are accountable, um, it just makes you seem more of a sure thing. It makes it more of a, an investable opportunity. That's one of the things I suppose that that does make businesses investable, which is, is one of the, the reasons that we formed the board was that we want some sort of solid structure. So asking the stupid questions, asking for more than you need, and then yeah, basically just kind of all the, all those three things I think would be my top tips. Okay, and final question. Yeah. Tell us about another. Tell us about a business you love. Business that I love. Oh, oh, you know what? I do have an answer to this. And it's a Glasgow-based business uh, called Sprig. Um, So Sprig Salad Bar, run by my friend Tom. What I love about that business is that not only did he, like, spend, like, a long time researching, which I I think is really cool. He basically researched for, like, two years before he started Sprig. Um, He researched, like, how to set up, like, this amazing salad bar what would be involved, like what, what would we sell, how much would we sell it for, which is so cool because you actually spent so much time researching the customer and the need, which you don't often see a lot of people just obviously dive in. But he actually spent so much time like planning, which is really cool. And then obviously today he's actually got two stores in Glasgow and they're like one of the most Instagrammable things. Like if you go on Instagram every single day, there's like like literally like hundreds of people. I believe I've pictures. Instagrammed a sprig bowl myself. Yeah, as have I, yeah. Everyone, everyone takes photos of their sprig bowls which is just the coolest thing. I mean, imagine being able to create create a salad bar that people actually want to take a picture of the packaging 
every single day. I love that. In Glasgow. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's a salad bar. Yeah, exactly. In Glasgow. So he's totally nailed that, which I think is really cool. So, um, yeah, the whole the whole planning, it's been so well planned out and then obviously executed on. But he's, he's landed on something really cool with the, the whole like shareable Instagramable thing. So love that. Great. Well, thank you for being our first guest. Thanks. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. If you know a purpose-driven entrepreneur with a story worth telling who would make for a great guest on the Story Shop podcast, send us a message on social media. We're at We Are Story Shop on all channels.